Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I sit down and interview Dr. Lauren DeGrieff. We conducted this interview from Chicago at the Canine Hits Conference back in August. Dr. DeGrieff is one of the researchers and scientists who study odor, and more specifically, study odor mixtures. She has done groundbreaking research and uh, various experiments and provided extremely great information for those of us in the explosive world when it comes to odor mixtures and how to properly train dogs when it comes to taking individual scents and then creating mixtures that actually mimic or match the odor mixtures that you may find in your environment. Basically, what we thought in the process of working detection dogs, specifically explosive related, was if you trained on a certain type of substance, that even if this substance was mixed with another substance, the dogs would hit it, no problem. What we learned in her research had shown us is that's not always the case. You need to expose the dog to the mixtures. And those that have listened to my other podcast with Dr. Nathan Hall, he brings up many of the same things. So we discuss these items as well as many others, including synthetic odor versus odor from actual materials in the environment that dogs are trained to detect, um, and some other stuff that we go back and forth with. So with that said, I hope everybody enjoys the interview. And again, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, or want to share information with me, please do so. My email address is Ford, F-O-R-D, at silverstatecanine.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I am out here currently in Chicago at the Canine Hits Conference, where I get the pleasure to do a great interview here with Dr. Lauren DeGrieff. Lauren and I have crossed paths in, in various sectors and conferences, and, and I've read some of her research in, on the uh, detection dog community, so I'm really glad to have her here in person to be able to ask questions. So with that said, I won't try to, to do your background for you. I'll let you do it. Welcome to the show, Dr. DeGrieff, and please let our listeners know, um, just give us a little history about yourself and how you ended up in the dog community and research side of things. Sure. Um, thank you for having me today. I'm thrilled to be here. I love talking to handlers. That's the best part of the job. Um, so I have been doing detection dog research for more than 10 years. I think going on 12 now. Um, I have a PhD in chemistry, uh, specifically forensic chemistry from Florida International University, which is where I started my detector dog research. I didn't know that's what I was going to go into. I mm -hmm. thought I was going to do arson analysis. Okay. I don't know why I thought that. I just did. And then I heard about, I didn't even know this was a subject area in forensics. And when I found out, I was, that was it. I was in the research group and I have not left it since. Um, after I finished, uh, at, um, after I finished my graduate work, I did a postdoc at the FBI, um, working with, uh, cadaver and blood dog detection. Um, and now I'm at the, um, Naval Research Laboratory. Um, I was brought in to do work with uh, explosives training aids. 
related to canines, and I have stayed and developed a program. I work with other scientists, chemists, uh, engineers, and whatnot that do um, a lot of work related to sensing and vapor detection. I am the only one whose sensor happens to be furry and cute. Okay, yep. But generally, <laughs> we all are out to try to figure out the best way to um, assess sensors or um, create sensors or, in my case, train my furry sensor mm-hmm. um, to you know remove harmful materials from public. Okay. The one of the things that I generally get into is the importance of how science is entering our dog world even more now. Um, how have you, with you being on the science side of things, how have you seen the integration of the working dog world coming into science and, and what's been your experience so far as you've seen these two worlds kind of merge together? Sure. It's, I've watched it kind of come from when I was in grad school and I used to go to the swig dog meetings um, mm-hmm. and listen to people fight. Um, and now the it was, and it, you always had to push really hard to make the science known mm-hmm. and the science heard. And there weren't um, as many people caring and worried about the science behind canine detection. Um, and now just over the last decade, you can see you don't have to push as hard. People are more interested. Mm-hmm. Um, people have better and better backgrounds on the science. Um, as new handlers come up, they are um, encouraged more and more often to go out and understand the science behind what their dog mm-hmm. is doing. And it, it really does create a better detector the more you know about it. Absolutely. And you hit a main thing that I think the professional world has to – start doing more or understanding what they have is a sensor. And because they have a sensor, there are certain scientific protocols that we need to start following uh, that we haven't been doing as much or or putting as much effort into that we really need to go to now. And one of the things I talk about quite a bit is a odor recognition test, um, which is more common in the explosive world, but we don't see it too often in a narcotic setting. Or even some of the other, even with cadaver and some of the other ones, they don't necessarily have it set up. How important is having a odor recognition test as part of having that furry sensor, as we call it? Sure, um, that's a really great question. Um, I use odor recognition tests a lot in my testing, but that doesn't mean it's not also important for training. Um, one of the bigger concerns when you're training an animal is knowing ex- exactly what the scent is mm-hmm. be- when you're training. In the real world, it may be a mixture. There may be wrappings or um, some kind of other extraneous odors attached to it. But when you're doing the training, you don't want to train the dog to the wrong thing. Um, my Dr. Ken Furton, my research advisor, always says that the number one uh, advantage of a detector dog is that they can be easily, they're a mobile biosensor that can be trained easily to new odors, mm-hmm. which is true. That is a huge advantage. But yep. then he pops up on the next slide. The number one disadvantage of a detection dog <laughs> is that they are mobile biosensors that can be easily trained to new owners. <laughs> so what he's getting at there is that it's really easy to get the dog off track. Yeah. So if you are not doing your at least your initial training in a controlled manner, mm-hmm. you might be training your dog to something else accidentally, particularly yep. when you're dealing with things like maybe explosive narcotics that have don't have much odor available as it is. Mm-hmm. Things like plastics, for instance, when you mix that odor, that, that plastic is going to have a lot more odor mm-hmm. than what you're training. And the dog is not going to work that hard because the dog doesn't know what you want it to do. So mm-hmm. if there's a lot more plastic odor, 
that's what they're going to cue in on. And so now your dog is trying to find yep. plastic. You just trained your dog to find plastic instead yep. of trying to find whatever your target is. Mm-hmm. So when you use an odor recognition test, it's a very controlled way to be sure you know what odor you're giving the dog before you go out in the real world where there's you know an uncontrollable number of other odors. Yep. And you bring up the, another big point is uh, as they're in this process – they have to deal with the various levels of contamination, um, non-target odor items like you brought up, like plastic and things like that. So I'm a detection dog trainer, and I want to start doing things the right way. So one of the first things i got to do is get the proper odor samples or substances samples so I can have the, that material to train my dog on. With that said, uh, well, I'll start with the storage aspect. What's the best way to store our training aids so that way when we begin this process of odor association, the dog's never had a substance before, what's the best way to ensure that that material I give them to start with is is cared for and stored properly? Sure. So one of the big things you have to be concerned about in storage is what I call you don't want the odors to talk to each other. So if you have TNT, and you have RDX as your two training materials, TNT has more odor coming off of it. So if you store those two together, your RDX is going to get TNT vapor all over it. Mm -hmm. And then by putting that RDX out, all you're doing is just continuing to train your dog on TNT. It just just became a secondary TNT sample. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very careful to contain your individual odors in such a way that they don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So you need, to, so I always recommend double containment and that means, and so you have two good containers um, on top of each other and then that will separate your different odors and then those can be housed in like a pelican case together. Okay. So the other thing you have to be concerned about is the containment itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting odor on your target. So again, going back to like plastic. Mm -hmm. So you may pull your target out of that plastic container and think that's it. As long as I don't have the plastic container there, the dog's not smelling that, but that's not true. The plastic can impart its own odor to Mm -hmm. your training material. And so that becomes part of the scent picture. So um, the best way to handle that is for your, I said we have, we do double containment, right? So your inner material Uh should, the most important characteristic is that it doesn't impart odor to it. So like I use aluminized bags, but there's a lot of different options. And then the most important part for the outer container is to stop it talking to the the compound next Mm -hmm. to it. So I will do things where I'll put my training aid in like an aluminized bag on the inside and then a mason jar or, um, Something like a glass jar. Type yeah, something thing, yeah. something um, better on the outside. Okay. So the aluminized bags, how or where can if that's a newer item that I know most people don't get to hear too often. How do they find that? Is that something that is it you can go to Amazon and find it? Yeah. Or? I actually buy mine off of Amazon. So there you go. And um, no joke, they are usually associated with places that are selling them for um, dispensaries. Oh. So yep. the goal is to find the ones that don't have pot leaves on them. Yes, exactly. That would be a good a good one not to have on there for sure. <laughs> it doesn't unless look you're good. doing the your marijuana training, then I guess it would work out fine yeah, for then, you. But in those you cases, have a not label on it. You, you bring up the same thing that's a reoccurring theme with the other podcasts I've done, which is the glass jar, uh, because we've all seen it where 
a lot of times in law enforcement, especially the narcotics side of things, these guys are given their training aids inside these evidence bags with yeah. uh, you know, the, the evidence tape on top of it and some notes written on the outside of the bag, probably in a Sharpie or whatever. And then that gets stuffed in a canvas bag and then that's put out as a training aid. Yeah. And that canvas bag is dumped into a, a Pelican case. Right. So, and what we described there, the level of contaminants far exceed yeah. what the target material is that we want the dog to detect. So, the for the listeners, what it was bringing up, and those that have listened to these podcasts, you're hearing a constant theme, which is glass jar, pelican case, these aluminum bags. Um, the the other ones I brought up for when I put odor out, I'll use. We have those wedding those uh, we call them wedding bags, but they're like the mesh bags, yeah. so that creates a surface area even better. Mm-hmm. But of course, you have to have a vessel that blocks that. So when I put that out, right. doesn't contaminate the other area, but it. it Doing better than just taking something out of evidence and throwing it in a thing, we have to do that. We have to apply what science is telling us, and science loves glass jars, loves, like you said, the ability to, to keep the odors from talking to each other and overlapping on each other, which brings into that point of, okay, so we've established that we this is the best way to keep our things from talking to each other. When I want to initiate my training... Um, I want to have, is it better to do one odor at a time or do we want to stuff all these odors together? And again, this is a question I ask a lot of uh, the chemists and researchers on this because there's a theme here that I want our listeners to hear is what's the pros and cons to that? So the, like I said, the co- we call it the cocktail method versus single odor at a time. That's a fantastic question also. Um, as far as how the, whether the dog perceives the cocktail um, as a individual components that are all together or as like, or as um, the mixture itself, that's beyond the kind of research I do. That's mm-hmm. a different, that's behavioral research. Yep. So I will not uh, try to, I will not tread into behavioral research, sure. um, but I will make the statement that dogs understand, individual dogs will understand odor differently. Mm-hmm. So that comes into play. But on the chemistry side of things, the problem with doing the cocktail is that the things that have the greatest vapor pressure and thus the most odor are, as I talked about earlier, are going to dominate that odor signature. So there was an accidental study, which is which are usually the best studies. Mm-hmm. There, there was an accidental study, and I wish I remembered who did this um, I don't offhand. A friend of mine, I think, asked me for this the other day. He asked if I could find it because I think it's kind of what you're bringing up. Yes, and I don't offhand know where it is. But um, so there was an accidental study, and um, they were doing some testing with explosives dogs, and they were using something more traditional like you had where you just basically have your um, your target odors, your training aids in like a single container of some sort, and you throw them all in the Pelican case together. Yeah. So they had nine different odors in there. Um, different types of explosives that can range from very low vapor pressure, very little odor like RDX mm-hmm. to things that are much higher, um, well, TNT, but I, I think they had ones even higher than that yeah. in the in the mixture. And when they went to go test the dogs on those nine odors that they had just trained them on, mm-hmm. the dogs could only find the two or three with the highest vapor pressure. Yep. And that's basically because those three, two or three compounds had so much more odor coming off than all the other ones. It basically got stuck over all the other ones. And that was the only thing the dogs could, uh, picked up on. Mm -hmm. Are they capable of finding things that have very low vapor pressures and very small amounts? Absolutely. But if you give them something that's much easier to find, why would they try that Mm -hmm. hard? 
So that's um, so when they put out fresh ones of the other six lower vapor pressure compound uh, materials, mm-hmm. the dogs were not able to find them. Yeah, and especially when it comes to narcotics. What have you seen as far as volatility of narcotic substances? And I know we'll get into it more in a, in a minute or so, but just on the same to give a baseline for the, the drug dog handlers and bomb dog handlers, what have you seen when it comes to the the narcotic side of things when it comes to uh, volatile odors? Honestly, narcotics are going to work pretty much the same as explosives or or any other materials you might be training to. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a range. So if you have something like cocaine, um, you know that there's Usually a reasonable amount of um, methyl benzoate is the mm-hmm. odor we always talk mm-hmm. about coming off of it. Anybody who smelled heroin, mm-hmm. fair amount of acetic acid coming off yep. of that. But if you start getting into things like, I don't know, if you maybe want to try on fentanyl, mm-hmm. um, people are having, researchers are having a hard time trying to figure out what that odor is. And when yep. re- researchers are having a hard time with that, that means there's not much there. The dogs are tend to be better than our instruments, so we sure. have to work really hard at things like that. Um, so you get into the same issue where you have the things with the, with more odor, higher mm-hmm. vapor pressure, perhaps mixing with things of lower lower mm-hmm. amounts, and it becomes difficult for the dogs. One of the uh, one of the things I've heard recently was, um, I guess, it was kind of a way to describe how volatile a substance is. But a, vol- a substance that usually is heated up and smoked is something that's typically more volatile than something that's injected or. Uh, has to be changed initially to be taken in. So, and, and that's why it becomes that, or it's, it's chosen that way, is because it can be smoked because of how it's done. But for odor-wise, it's also the most odorous ones because of the way it's designed to be. So is that a fair analogy or a fair kind of um I never thought about that, but it seems logical. And yeah. I can't offhand think of an example that would defeat that. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was interesting to me and it made sense because, yeah, if I'm going to smoke it, it's probably more reactive right. um, versus something that I have to put in my bloodstream. Um, so so that brings up the thing where people are like, oh, meth is the hardest one for the dogs to detect. And I'm like, you can't just blanket, you know, make that comment because meth is something that's smoked. It is different in a sense in its crystal forms and things like that. It get involved, and there's you know obviously various ways some people make meth or cook meth. But to say that that's the hardest one, I don't necessarily agree. Just because you can't smell it as well doesn't mean the dog doesn't smell it as well. Right. So people, there's each individual odorant. People and dogs will have different thresholds for that, and people and dogs don't necessarily have the same threshold for the same compounds. So there can be something that we can't smell, even if we stick our face up to it, that the dogs can I mean, the dogs are obviously more sensitive to the sure. human, but on top of that, you have threshold differences. Yep. There are some compounds that are important to humans and not mm-hmm. like flowers, for instance, mm-hmm. but not important to dogs that yep. we have a particularly low threshold for. And I don't know that anybody's tested this, but perhaps the dogs actually don't outperform us mm-hmm. in that in circumstances sure. like that. Sure. No, it makes sense. And Again, it goes back to the whole reason why it's not best to do the cocktail method where you're just grabbing you know, various narcotics or explosives throw them in there because there's these other things that you may not smell that are actually stronger than the main right. chemical that you really want to detect anyway. So going along our timeline here, so we said, okay, we know how to store our stuff. We now want to initiate, do our association of the target odor with the dog. In the once I've done kind of my initial exposure, the dog is understanding there's a target here versus a non-target, which is obviously in the beginning we use a you know, blank something has nothing and something has something. 
how important is it to introduce distracting or proofing odors in that sequence? Do you want to wait till later on? Do you want to do it sooner in the beginning of training so that so there's a, a, a learning curve there? How, what would be a science recommended way of doing that? I'm not a, a trainer. Mm-hmm. However, Mm -hmm. and so people can argue with me and they could be right. However, in my opinion, I would start distractors as, you know, shortly or as soon as the dog, you know, knows that odor at all. Mm -hmm. Distractors are really, are are really important to make sure the dog is not finding an odor. Mm -hmm. Um, When you, let's say you're doing an odor recognition test. If the only thing you have out is your target odor, then you don't know that your dog is finding the target odor per se, or Mm -hmm. if they're just finding... The, if you just have a bunch of empty cans, nothing has any odor in it. So yeah. why would they not stop at the only one that has an odor? Yep. So once you just start getting that initial behavior, it's important to put the distractors out. So mm-hmm. that way the dog is like understands, no, it's this odor, not mm-hmm. an odor. So whenever I set up testing, mm-hmm. it's really important that we put distractors out. And when I report false alarm rates, I've actually started reporting mostly the distractor false alarm rates mm-hmm. because it's more important to me that the dog that I'm testing isn't just finding an odor. Yeah. They're finding the odor. Yep. Um, whether or not they alert a false alert on a blank box could be mm-hmm. important, but it's not nearly as important. Yeah. No, it makes sense. The, so now we go down the path. So I've got, I've gone through and I've got my dog on the target odors I wanted to train him on. Uh, and I'm using as, or a pure version of that substance I can. Um, when it comes to uh, the next phase, this is the research that you really got into, um, how important is it to start and, and what did you learn by odor mixtures? What, so go with your project, kind of describe that and let the listeners in on odor mixtures and what you've learned from it and the importance of it and how to kind of navigate that, especially I know uh, bomb dog wise and narcotic wise is important too, but I'll let you kind of go from where sure. you started. So there was some um, research from before I got to the Naval Research Laboratory um, that was supported by Office of Naval Research and I believe was done by Lisa Albuquerque and yeah. I want to say NC I, th- I remember seeing research on that as well. NC yeah, yeah. Um, And they did um, there are several different studies, but basically what they were showing is that the dogs that were trained on just ammonium nitrate or just potassium chlorate were not necessarily particularly proficient at finding the uh, mixtures of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some mixtures varied. Some were easier than others. Um, but that's a big problem. And then yeah. on top of that problem is that, well, if we're training the dog to um, ammonium nitrate and fuel oil in the U.S. and then sending them off to mm-hmm. Afghanistan or wherever, yeah. the ammonium nitrate and the fuel oil that we use mm-hmm. may not be what's used there. In fact, they're, maybe they're using aluminum powder. Maybe they're yep. using something that we don't have here. Yeah. So um, not only are is training on the oxidizer alone perhaps not enough, mm-hmm. um, what we found, or what these studies have shown, is that training on training on the wrong mixture also causes proficiency issues, and you need to be able to easily train the dog on new new mixtures. Mm-hmm. So, um, what Lisa Albuquerque came up with was a thing known as the merger or okay. the doggy snuffleator okay. in some communities. <laughs> um, it was actually an ingenious um, invention. A little difficult to handle, but sure. ultimately pretty smart. And where you put, um, you have uh, pipes. Kind of like, yeah, two like pipes P- that kind of yeah, merge you have together. Like P- PVC piping that have a T in the middle and then a 
rain bowl at the yep. top. And so you would put the ammonium nitrate in one leg and let's say your aluminum powder in the other leg and the odor from it would mer- would come through yeah. these pipes and the dog would experience a mixture at the top. And they were, sh- they were able to show, I think this was using potassium chloride mixtures, mm-hmm. that using the, the doggy snooflator or the yeah. merger to um, train the dog on different mixtures really, really helped the proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great. However, it was not the most practical device to use. Yep. And so that's where I came in. So they brought this, Office of Naval Research brought this over to um, myself at NRL uh-huh. and my colleagues and said, we like this. Can you make this more practical? So from that, we developed the mod, which is the mixed odor delivery device. So okay. it generally works the same. It's just, except it's a little square box that okay. sits nicely and is a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the concept is it, it holds up to four segregated materials. Um, and when you put them in there and you close it up, mm-hmm. the odors have to are released from the little vials that they're in. Mm-hmm. They mix, um, and then they are released at the top, so the dog okay. experiences a mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why that was particularly important for homemade explosives is because once you mix that oxidizer and that fuel together, mm-hmm. you have a an explosive, and you mm-hmm. have an explosive that could range in sensitivity depending mm-hmm. on what ratio you mm-hmm. used. So there's safety concerns. So in order to um, train a dog to new mixtures, you were going to have to bring in um, chemists or what have you to oversee it, and then they have to destroy it, and it's a whole ordeal, sure. and it's expensive. So oh, yeah. dogs weren't being trained very frequently. Mm-hmm. So when you take something like the merger or now the mod, you can now train the dog on these homemade explosives, except they're not actually homemade explosives. They're completely – they're just like multiple benign materials yes. that create the odor of the explosive. So now if you are a police officer, you can – Put mods out on your in your community. Yep. No risk, no concerns, yep. and you can let the dogs train on it. Okay. Um. So that's why it was originally developed. Um, we always tell people that when you use them, to use multiple because blanks are really important. And again, just you need to have you know ones with distractors and yep. things like that. Um. But it, it gives a lot more opportunity for training on different mixtures and allowing dogs to generalize. So yep. maybe the mixtures that you put in it are not necessarily the mixtures that the dogs will experience okay. in real life. But if you give them a lot of options, yep. they'll start to understand that I like ammonium nitrate yep. and maybe sometimes it's mixed with other okay. stuff. So that, that leads to the uh, question I have here. How do you go about gauging the mixtures properly? So how much, because we know it's not necessarily weight of something that puts off the odor, it's more the surface area. Yeah. Obviously the mod would, they all had the same surface area. But with the volatility of, say, the fuel oil um, would be obviously highly uh, volatile as far as the headspace and odor compared to the ammonium nitrate. Is there a way that you can regulate it so target substance is still stronger? How would that work? What's the best way to deal with that? If you actually have the the mixed explosive, and ANFO is a really good example because the the ammonium nitrate has such low amount of odor and Mm -hmm. everybody knows how much diesel fuel can smell or any kind of fuel of that nature can smell. So it's a good example. So in the real life, you are going to have that that diesel fuel overwhelming Mm -hmm. the smell of the ammonium nitrate. Mm -hmm. So when you put it in the mod, the the fuel oil is still going to win out. However, if you, let's say, your dog is having trouble, is trained on AN and they're Mm -hmm. having trouble with ANFO, Mm -hmm. there are ways to change that. So um, you can take one of those vials or this, and this works outside the mod. This works in real life. If you want to change the amount of odor, you don't have to change the amount that's in the vial or in mm-hmm. the jar. You can just put a lid on it that has a hole, and yep. it restricts the odor, and yes. now you have substantially less. Absolutely. So if you um, want to work up to have a real ANFO mixture, mm-hmm. you could have, like in the mod, what sometimes we'll do is put three 
vials of mm -hmm. ammonium nitrate in of the four holes, and then yep. we'll put fuel oil with a cap with a little little hole on it. Yep. So now you have a fair amount of AN yep. odor and just a little bit of, of diesel, diesel fuel, yeah. and so the dog can start getting it. And then you can start changing that out until it reaches something yep. more similar to um, the real real material because AMPO is a, a, a challenging. Sure. Because you don't, you certainly don't want to accidentally train your dog to find diesel fuel. That is not going to help no, your no. life at all. And in fact, when I was way back in the day, when I was in the military, one of the things that we started uh, running into, and those have been in it long enough, was we started having the nickname for some dogs. We call them cordon because the dogs kept alerting to uh, diesel trucks, and they have to do yeah. a cordon that set the area up, make everybody safe. Turns out it's just a diesel. The dog was just going, oh, you've made diesel my primary thing I'm getting reinforced for, and dogs started having that problem. So they eventually worked it all out, but that was a common issue that we, they ran through. So, But what, what I liked what you described, which is those that want to work on uh, thresholds, uh, the cap analogy there, which is let's say it's a mason jar or what have you, creating that cap that has either multiple holes on it or down to one hole limits the amount of odor that's getting out and that's a very simple very easy way to work on thresholds versus taking something like a cotton ball sticking it in with something taking that cotton ball out uh just because there's also contaminants and things like that that may come from where the cotton ball came from or wherever else it is so what i really liked i got to see that at texas tech was they had their jars with the various number of holes and they work on their thresholds uh as one of the tools that they had so it's cool to hear that you described the same thing to within that mod that can help uh, like you said, making the target substance more salient compared to the non-target substance there. This episode is brought to you by the Sensible Canine. Making sense of scent work. The Sensible Canine is owned and operated by Pete Stevens. Pete Stevens has a vast experience in detection dogs and myself and Elliot Zibley were the first three uh, three bald guys everybody remembers us as working together uh, putting out various seminars under sensible canine and it has since grown to what it is today and keeps pete pretty busy sensible canine is uh, a education and workshop based uh, business pete goes to your area or you come out to southern california and go through various types of seminars where we focus on the skill sets needed um, most times geared towards nose work but these days it's expanding to all types of scent work uh, professional and sport so look up uh, the sensible canine the website is exactly that thesensiblecanine.com i will put a link in the show notes contact them set up a seminar or come to one of the seminars that we host uh, many times in the Southern California area, but soon we will have our first sensible canine in Las Vegas at the Silver State Canine Facility. So again, look up the sensiblecanine.com. It's k9.com for the end of that. But again, I'll have the show notes. We'll have the web link there for you. 2019 has been a wonderful year here at Silver State Canine. And we are so thankful for all of you who have come to either our handler courses, our trainer courses, or our seminars. 2020 is already starting off to be a busy year for us. And we created a new calendar that will be on our website and on our social media feeds. If you are looking for a handler class or you're looking for a trainer's class, 
contact us. Our classes are focused on proven scientific and psychological training methodology that helps you train and communicate to your dog in a much more efficient and effective way. We also offer seminars in a variety of topics, and now we have added even bite work and protection work to the courses and classes that we have here at Silver State Canine. Also, if you're looking for a trained detection dog, contact us. We customize each dog that we train for any of our clients based on your needs. And in this process, we work with you step-by-step from selecting the dog to the training of the dog to then the handler school that you'll go through when you pick the dog up. So again, if you're looking for any of our Silver State Canine services to include our mobile classroom where we come to you, contact us. Info. I-N-F-O at SilverStateK9.com or just go visit our website. We've redesigned it, updated it, www.SilverStateK9.com. That's SilverStateK9.com. PackTrack is the top choice for canine handlers, trainers, and supervisors seeking a full-featured, flexible, and secure record management solution. It's designed to work the way that you do, whether you're at your desk or in the field. PackTrack was developed, tested, and proven by top canine training experts. To ensure safety of all recorded data, PackTrack operates the same way as secure infrastructures do in the U.S. government and numerous financial institutions. Their unique data management solution, which continuously backs up all records, provides convenient access to information throughout any web browser or your iOS or Android device. From the beginning, PackTrack has been focused on protecting officers and agencies from potential liability. Professionally designed forms and concise modern looking reports make it very easy to document and prove the canine's reliability in court. Visit PackTrackApp.com, that's www.p-a-c-k-t-r-a-c-k-a-p-p.com. So with that said, you've done, you talked about it a little bit with uh, explosive. How about narcotics? So we just, I just completed a study a couple of weeks ago, um, really exciting with narcotics. So uh, the, one of the first times that I did a presentation about the mod to handler community, I got in a conversation with some handlers um, that told me that, well, you know, hey, um, would this work for narcotics? I'm like, yeah, I don't know why not. And then they Mm -hmm. went on to explain to me why. And it was a really important question. And what they said was, well, my training aids are pure cocaine. I cannot adulterate it. That's the only thing I'm allowed to train on or train Mm -hmm. or pure what, what have you, but I'm using cocaine in the example. Um, but street drugs are not pure. So what my dog will do is tap dance around it. I know what's there, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't ever put its butt down and that's my dog's final alert. So now I can't get a search warrant. Okay. So now you're having like a legitimate problem, even though the handler knows it. So if that was an explosive dog, they pop, if the handler was like, no, there's something there, yeah. they would bring some people in to inspect. Sure. But because now we're talking about warrants, now mm-hmm. you have a different problem. Yep. So they wanted to know about using the mod for narcotics. So we set up a test. Um, I often work with um, hobby dogs. They're okay. nose, yeah, work, the nose work dogs. Nose yep. work dogs. Yep. Mm-hmm. A lot of those listeners around here yeah. as well. Yep. Yes, there's a, there's a there's a lot of nose work dogs in the world, so I can get a lot of 
data points mm-hmm. and they've been really phenomenal to work with. I've loved yep. it. So um, I took a group of 19 nose work dogs and I did uh, baseline testing. So we sent them with cocaine mimics. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, it was a commercially available yep. co- uh, cocaine mimic. We sent them out and said, go train on this. Yep. They trained on it. And then I, and I, then I made quote unquote uh, street relevant mixtures. So I took sure. that cocaine mimic and I mixed it with a variety of different with, um, I don't know, baking soda and caffeine uh-huh. and a whole variety of things. And um, tested them on it and measured how they did. They all got their cocaine mimics really well, mm-hmm. so their positive control was good. Uh, false alert rate was very low. We put okay. on lots of distractors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we tested them, and I can't remember what the numbers are, but they got about 60% of the mixture. The mm-hmm. do- about 60% of the dogs found mixtures. Okay. Um, which is not probably what alert rate you would prefer, mm-hmm. right? In the yeah. field, you'd kind of like to be, you know, closer to 100. Sure. At least or, the, or at least, least meet the probable cause. Yeah. You know, there's no exact science number to that, right. but yeah, higher so, we are, the better. So, yes. Yeah, so, so that wasn't fantastic, um, which is what I wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. And I have to, when I run these tests, mm-hmm. I have to motivate the handlers and be like, you're supposed to miss things. Otherwise, yeah. my data is oh, not yeah. interesting. No, it's exactly. fine. Like, Everybody wants to have the perfect dog. Yes. They're so afraid of any mistake or yes, I'm like, error. No, it's fine. Yeah. So, because um, the dogs aren't doing anything wrong. The no. dogs are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Uh-huh. So, the the question is, is, is that that dog is doing what it's supposed to be doing. How do we tell the dog, no, I want you to do this mm-hmm. instead? Mm-hmm. So then I split the group in half, and then half the dogs just continued to train on that cocaine mimic alone and nothing else, nothing changed. The other half of the dogs were sent with a whole bunch of mods. Mm-hmm. I gave them cocaine mimic, and I gave them all kinds of different things to make mixtures. And I said, I, I mean, they kept track for me, but I told them they sure. could make the mixtures however they wanted. Um, the materials that they were given were not necessarily all the materials that I used mm-hmm. because I was looking at um, not necessarily how do they respond to specific mixtures, but mm-hmm. how do they respond to cocaine in a variety of different mm-hmm. mixed forms? Cause in real life you cannot train to every single yeah, field, just so many, yeah. street relevant yeah. mixture. Yep. So what we, we were able to show after we came back and repeated the same test that the dogs that trained on the mod responded, mm-hmm. they all improved, yep. which you would expect, right? Sure. They all had an extra six weeks of training. So, of course, the group as a whole improved, but the improvement of the mod group was was significant compared mm-hmm. to, statistically significant, in fact, sure. <laughs> compared to the ones that didn't have the mod. And that was very, very cool yeah. to be able to show. Definitely. And, and because we know, depending on the narcotic, they're, they're all cut differently. So certain regions are cut with certain products right. and so forth. So knowing what that is. So how important should it be for a canine unit, if possible, to get a sample of their training substances tested so they know what's in it. Because right now, they may know it's tested positive for this. They just give it to them by their evidence room or DEA sent them their narcotic kit. And all they know it, it is this. But how important would it be for them to go get that sampled so that way they know what else is there? Absolutely. So whether it's, especially if they're going to be training on a street sample, which I know people yep. do, mm-hmm. it's incredibly important because mm-hmm. you could have something there that's um, mixed with it that has a huge odor. And ultimately you're just training your dog to find whatever that cutting agent or yeah. what have you is. Um, so you need to be able to, if you know that your, your street material that you're mm-hmm. allowed to train on has your, let's say cocaine, mm-hmm. and then has also has A and B cutting agent. Mm-hmm. You can then go purchase A and B cutting agents and use that as distractors. Yep. And make sure that your dog is signaling on the cocaine Correct. and not the cutting agents. Yes, yeah, absolutely. No, and that's 
Um, I think, you know, a lot of the industry has struggled to figure out how do I go about getting that tested? Um, what would you recommend? I know there's various labs, but what's an easy way if I'm an agency and I say, okay, I agree, I need to get this tested. Um, I know like uh, Texas Tech has offered, you know, as one of the places they can send stuff to. But, you know, basically they need to go to a lab that can specialize that. Obviously, bigger agencies have their own labs. Um, but basically a, a chemical lab that can be can use the right instruments, I guess, is by yeah. the way, that can give them the readings that they have. So you know, I don't know. I can't recommend specifically where sure. to go because I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that you, they would need to communicate to whomever is doing the lab analysis because mm-hmm. that person who's doing the lab analysis is going to assume they just want to know that there's cocaine in yeah. it. Yeah. So you need to communicate – no, I, I actually need to know what all, all the rest of it, yeah. and I need and you, you know, and maybe you need to explain to the people mm-hmm. why so they yep. know how important it is. But yeah, no, and that and so it brings around you. You brought up uh, some of the synthetic versions of canine uh, training aids. Um, what have you seen, and uh, you know how important or how good is synthetics out there now, and and, and what's their place in detection uh, training? That's a really good question that I actually get, I get asked a lot. And I don't entirely, sh- some people, I know DOD, for instance, uses no mimics in their yeah, training. And right. I understand that. And yep. if they have access to all, all of the target stuff, materials yeah. they need, then that is great. Not everybody has access or at least does not have regular access to mm-hmm. all the materials you need. And so mm-hmm. your only option is to go for a mimic, a pseudo, a commercially available mm-hmm. training aid, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and the best way to handle it is to read as much about that brand Mm -hmm. before you buy it because you need to understand its limitations. So they're all going to have a shelf life, Mm -hmm. which is really important. But then you need to keep keep in mind that if you're not following the storage protocols, if they say their shelf life is a week, that's not a good example. Let's say a a year. um, But they say you have to refrigerate it when it's not in use, then that shelf life is only relevant if you're using it in that manner, Mm -hmm. if you are storing it in your trunk, it has a much shorter shelf life, much shorter. Um, And, and then if you're, even if you're storing it in the refrigerator, but you're using it in a very, very hot environment and you're leaving it out in the sun for a long time, that's going to change your storage, uh, your shelf life also. So reading as much as possible, there's not as much literature about uh, commercially available training aids as I Wish there was. I did sure. do an HMTV paper, but okay. that's a really specific. Yeah, yeah. That's a really specific yeah. one. Um, but they all from from the work that I've done, they all have their pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's the knowledge. The knowledge is really, and I would push people. Actually, I know a lot of people have done studies, but they don't publish them, and sure. there's reasons for that. But I yeah. think it's really important. Um, for that research to be done and yep. to be published in a, su- such a way that people can get a hold of them. The people yeah. who need them can get a hold of them. Um, yeah, because the other thing to consider is that when something is reaching the end of its shelf life, it might not look the same as mm-hmm. it did. And some of the studies that I've shown is that once you open it, you'll get like, like a con- the constant drop in the amount of odor, mm-hmm. which means if you're, when your dog, I mean, maybe that's great. Maybe you're going to ultimately end up working threshold with the dog, Sure, but maybe you're going to push it way too low and now you're getting exactly. way too low of a threshold Just because it's dog. in your hand and you see, oh, this is the cocaine aid I've, I've always had. Yeah. It's got to be giving off that odor now. So no. some of them, yeah, some of them drop in the beginning. Some of the odors change mm-hmm. over time um, for, for a variety of different reasons. So mm-hmm. all those, as much information as you can get, so you mm-hmm. know what your training aid is doing, the mm-hmm. better. And you bring up another great point, which is, 
you know, people may, we, we, as handlers or trainers, we may hold something in our hand and we say, oh, this is that. So I'll just say, since we brought the explosives up, since the military can always use uh, the explosives they have in inventory for training and so forth, they have their MWD kit. What are some of the downsides of even though I'm holding real odor in my hand, we've talked about it a little bit already, that's problematic for just training on that? Yeah, so... The problem with those kits that let's say you change out once a year mm-hmm. because it's a real material. Yep. The there's a there's a handful. I mean, you've got to do what you got to sure. do, and I I get that. Yep. Um, but there's a couple of problems with that. If you're training on, if you have one or two sources of a single target, and you're mm-hmm. using that over and over again, you're going to get that is going to be so contaminated by the yep. time that year is up. Yep. And that is the same for whether it's commercial or whether it's real. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue. Yep. It's going to smell like wherever your storage yep. location and container is Uh not much you can do about that but like Mm -hmm. the longer the older it is the more but the other big problem is that most um agencies have they change their kits out after a given amount of time so every six months or every year Mm -hmm. but explosives or narcotics for that matter age differently yeah each chemical is different than another one right so one chemical like dynamite may uh-huh. stay pretty much stable for all eternity as long sure. as you don't contaminate it. But then you can have something else like HMTD, yep. which is going to smell like formaldehyde uh, when it's fresh yep. and then like dead fish uh-huh. when it's old. And yep. then there's a continuum between that. So maybe, maybe you know, so that that, that six month you need to change it out every so often yeah. time is is not really necessarily based on a lot. I mean, you've got to, you've got to, um, I mean, you can't just have like all the fresh materials in the world. So you've, you've got to work with what you have, Mm -hmm. but if your dog's behavior is Mm -hmm. showing something, let's say weird where maybe they're no longer alerting to a training aid, trust your dog. Your dog is saying this, this odor, the odor that you train me to is no longer there. Yep. So um, a really good example of this is when I was working with um, the uh, uh, Naval Surface Warfare Center mm-hmm. at Indian Head, mm-hmm. and they were, I don't know exactly what their project was, but they were setting up um, some just some testing, and they had some certified dogs that were having a hard time finding um, ammonium nitrate mm-hmm. that they had put out. The ammonium nitrate that the dogs had been trained on was different than what was put out, and the the nice thing um, about me being able to work directly um, with the people there was that they, they said, hey, look at this and tell me what, what the dogs are doing. Yeah. And what we found is that it just happens to be that the ammonium nitrate that they chose to use for the testing mm-hmm. had a substantially less odor coming off of it than the stuff they were trained on. Yep. They weren't trained wrong. Yeah. And the, and the dogs weren't wrong. Yep. It's just that the yeah. odor was different. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's just really important. If you're, if you have a training aid that you know that your dog knows and now suddenly you're getting a different response. Yep. Your dog isn't messing with you probably. Yeah. And, and this brings it back to the point of that synthetic versus real argument. The, in the narcotic world, everybody was so afraid of, Oh, I can't. And I'm, I'll use the word pseudo in this situation. Oh, I can't train on pseudo because it's not real. And it's this, that, and the other. We're actually now at the point scientifically where we can say synthetic material in some cases is probably better than your substance that you have because Synthetic is created, controlled, and we know what it is as opposed to what you have, you know, from evidence and its level of contamination and, and non-target substances that are there. So, yeah, though you may hold something in your hand, you say this is this, 
the synthetic material, you know, based on what we know now, is actually in many cases a better alternative than what you were given in the case that you just made, where they saw that. So uh, for the listeners out there that used to have that argument of, oh, I can't do that because it's not a narcotic. No, it's it, the science now, we have the ability to know synthetic material. You can have chemicals in it that are the target chemicals without it being the narcotic in your hand or the explosive in your hand. As long as they're choosing the right chemicals to put on it mm-hmm. um, and, and ratios, there's, Correct. New, there's yes. nuances to it. But um, that, that you can definitely make pseudos that are, yeah. that are relevant and thus producing a very clean yep. odor. Yeah. Um, and that's what they were all scared about legally initially. They were like, oh, gosh, because no one really knew and there hadn't been enough, uh, I say, research or even the companies that were producing at the time synthetics uh, were letting out what was there, how it worked, and all the, the, the chemical combinations. But now there's a lot more to it. Um, and, and that's been helpful because, as we know, again, there's limits for the handlers on what they can get their hands on. Right. And along those same lines – you can speak to the importance of this. So as we've gone through our training, we've done now, we've got the storage, we've got the, the initial stages of training, now we're doing odor mixtures. How important is as they move on that they start not just training with what they have but train with what the neighboring agency has or the neighboring group? How important is that to use each other's training aids? Oh, that's incredibly important. I have heard so many stories about my dog does great on my training aids and as soon as I train on my neighboring jurisdiction's training aids, the dog can't find anything. Uh-huh. Well, then your dog is also probably not finding street material yeah. because that is because of contam- different contamination, different human scent, yep. different packaging. Yep. Um, cutting agents, cutting agents, yep. different ages of materials, a million different reasons. Mm-hmm. But um, so, and we can pull in the mimics of this. Yes, mimics or pseudos or what have you can be used, and there's definitely a reason for it. But the biggest thing to push in your training regimen is variety. Yep. Once your dog understands the odor, yep. and you know the dog understands the correct odor, mm-hmm. variety is really, really yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. And so. Here's a common question these days, and it comes back to our mixture thing here in a second. Um, so with marijuana being legalized in more and more states, a lot of these current drug dogs out there are being directed either by their agencies or the state attorney's office saying, hey, we can't use your dog anymore because they're trained on marijuana. So they ask the questions, can I proof my dog off marijuana? And I'll go into the cognitive side and say the, the problem you run into is you can untrain the behavior. The dog, You can basically teach the dog – do not do the sit anymore when you smell this. But what you can't untrain is the memory. The dog's memory and physiological response to that substance, even though you're not rewarding it anymore, still happens. So when you don't know the answer, you're going to see the dog do something and you may react on that. That's part of that. The next part of it brings us back to the mixtures is what's the number one narcotic that's always with other narcotics? Marijuana is always quite often, and many of the law enforcement officers will find out in the street, when they find cocaine, they find hair, and they're usually finding marijuana there too, which brings it back to the point of why the attorneys don't want to mess with it. My point for the canine handlers to realize is, okay, let's just say you tried your best to do the best proofing ever, and you do an odor recognition test every week showing that your dog is not alerting to the marijuana anymore. However, every search you're doing in the real world, and I don't want to use the word every, but a high probability of the searches you're doing in the real world have marijuana odor with the target substance that you want the dog to find, the cocaine, the heroin, the whatever. So even though in training you're doing one thing, 
real world when your dog responds to that vehicle and you, you say, oh, no, I'm not rewarding my dog. Uh, I just praise my dog off. Well, that's still a form of reinforcement. So you're still allowing the dog to get reinforced in an environment you have no control over and the marijuana odor is still going to be there. So despite your work, you, the real world screws you back over because the, um, the problem is mixtures. The, these mixtures are going to exist and you're not going to be able to, to fully get the dog to not do some type of response to it because of the odor mixtures that exist. So I, w- I want the, you know, the listeners to understand you're in a quandary. The legal system is changing. We have the federal side that still has it legal. You have the state side that are making it legalized. Um, so as handlers, you have to make a decision. Do you use your dogs for you know any, nothing that's probable cause based or use your dogs on federal type cases? Uh, you don't necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The dog can still be used as in other concepts. But I want you to understand that in the case that we're talking about with odor mixtures, uh, marijuana is going to be, unfortunately, in with a lot of the real things that you're finding out in the street. And, you know, there's no way you're not going to reinforce your dog at all on the street. You're not going to be like, well, I want to reinforce now. Let's pull my dog off. Well, then now you got another problem, which is the dog doesn't want to work on the street anymore because there's no reinforcement happening. So with all of that said, um, would you basically say from a science standpoint that obviously that contamination is going to be an issue to deal with real world for them? Yeah, because marijuana has a lot of a lot of odor coming off of it. I mean, we all know that. People yeah. can, I mean, people, I don't live in a particularly nice neighborhood and I, I can walk out of my house uh-huh. and I can quite tell when my neighbors out there, been, yeah. <laughs> which is frequently. Um, yep. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, marijuana has quite... Probably of all the drugs, yeah. probably yeah. has the strongest, the strongest yeah. odor, at least to humans it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I can't speak for a dog, but um, yeah, it's a problem because that marijuana is going to attach itself to mm-hmm. all of whatever Other your other things. drugs are. Plus the physical material that drugs are tend to be pretty absorbent. So yep. it really wants to absorb other odors around uh-huh. it, such oh, yeah. as marijuana or yep. what have you. So yeah, yeah I don't have an answer for the challenge. But. Yeah, no, but and that's what I want, you know, like I said, and recently, you know, I'm from Florida. Uh, I had a lot of handlers reach out to me and they were asking the question. I said, look guys, you know, I can speak to you about the cognitive side of things and the cognition side says you're not going to, you know, you can't unerase that memory. You can change that behavior like I talked about. But then I said, you're fighting the battle of what you're dealing with real world. And this is what, uh, unfortunately, you're dealing with real world. Now, here's my challenge on the legal side of things. Okay, so your your dog's still trained on marijuana. Your dog alerts the car. You find cocaine and marijuana. I would make it on the legal side as best you can. Make them prove which one the dog alerted to, because you don't you can't say for sure which one did the dog alert to. Was it the cocaine or marijuana? Your your dog's trained to detect both. Both were present. Both illegal. Have that you know. Let the state attorney know that they don't have to be afraid of that argument. You, it's not necessarily on you to prove which one it alerted to. You know the dog alerted to his train odor. So, you know, will stuff come down? I'm sure we'll be pressured by agencies to deal with these things. Yeah. So it's a unique one with the contamination and, and doing the, the different odor mixtures. This is a problem thing that these guys will deal with moving down the road. I mean, the bomb guys deal with it in different ways, but uh, this side of things too quite a bit. But being aware of the contamination issue is actually important when it comes down to um – new dogs that yep. are being that narcotics dogs and being very wary of introducing street drugs into the train like 
obfuscated yeah. yeah. street drugs into the training too mm-hmm. early because perhaps that did exist near marijuana or uh-huh. many other things Absolutely. that have odor on it that you don't want that dog yep. queuing in on. Yep. So that, that goes back to when you're starting a new dog mm-hmm. um, to make sure that you're training on a very pure yep. odor yeah. first. And, and when you start putting out the distractors or proofing odors, if you're an agency that's no longer doing any kind of marijuana dogs, marijuana needs to be a proofing distracting odor. Yeah, so that way you can easily articulate when challenged legally, your dog's not responding to right. that. Right. And if you put that in your training records and you have it, that no, yep. my dog doesn't hit on yep. marijuana. Yep. No. And that's another big important part. part. So with the, um, so like I said, we got through our, we're, we're in our training. We've gone to the, now we're at mixtures and we're proficient in that we're using our neighbor's uh, training aids as well. We're now we need to validate and prove that what our dogs are capable of. Uh, we talked about the odor recognition test a little bit. So the the first step would be odor recognition test. How often would the once you've got your dog, let's say certified and trained, we know the ORT is important. How often would you say is a good recommended? You know, I've been telling people once a month to do an ORT, but you know, what would you say is a good example of amount of time to kind of just keep calibrating or showing the calibration of that dog? I don't, I don't know if I can necessarily answer because I'm not a trainer how often, but I can tell you that any time that you um, see your dog, let's say you, you want to know, well, is my, did my dog not alert to my training material because mm-hmm. it's old or because there's something wrong with my dog? Go mm-hmm. back to the ORT. Um, my dog was ill. Yes. Go back to the ORT. Correct. Um, I have a new mixture that I'm concerned about. Go back to the uh-huh. ORT. If you, if you, are ever concerned about your dog's performance, going back to the ORT eliminates all other factors yeah. except for what odor is in that can. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I couldn't. And that's a great way to look at it for listeners is by having the ORT, it gives you a baseline to go back to. And it allows you to see things in a very controlled environment very easily. They stand out or they don't stand out. Which is what we do with our instruments. Um, depending on how I use my instrument, how often I calibrate it just regularly depends. But... Um, anytime I need to fix something on my instrument, anytime something breaks, anytime I have to replace something, mm-hmm. we always recalibrate it. Yep. That's when you definitely recalibrate it. Yeah. And that's and that would be the same thing. You know, whatever schedule of using the ORTs makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Again, I'm not a trainer. Uh, makes sense to you, but yeah. but most important is to go back to it whenever there's been maintenance. If yeah. You will. No, I totally agree. I think that's actually even even better. On top of the the once a month thing that I bring up is if. Uh, let's say the handler was on vacation for a month or whatever. Yeah, it's good, good to come back and, and do your ORT. Uh, the dog's been boarding or like you said, you see something training wise. Okay, let's go to ORT and document that in your training records because it's important. It shows if you're, if a legal side looks at it, it shows you're doing those things. It's a lot harder to challenge you now because you're following a scientific protocol. So with, with the, um, uh, with all this stuff, what additional? So we pretty much got the I got the dog step by step covered. What do you see coming down the pike? What's some of the interesting research you, that you want to do that you would like to do or you, that could happen? Okay, I'm, not gonna, I'm going to go back one second though to the yes. ORTs. Yes, one please. important thing that sorry, yeah, no, no, one important thing that we didn't talk about yeah. is the importance of doing blind ORTs. Yes, no, 100, particularly double blind. Yes, so ORTs agree. are not that useful if it's the handler Correct. setting them up. No, I told no That's fine excellent if you're trained, point. If you're starting a fresh dog, yes. but like you really need your friend to set it up when you're in the other room and then yeah. run them blind. No, it, the, you, you're Otherwise, 100% with distractors right. and the correct yeah. blanks. Yeah, okay. no, no, and, and that's again goes back to the listeners. If you listen to the other podcast, we talk heavily about blank and, and double blind and, and, double and blind doing is this. So important, absolutely, and 
and, and people forget that and they're so afraid. I, I have trainers that will go, well, I need to be there. I need to see what happens. No, you don't. You don't have to be there to see that. You just need to know that you know the answer is because you set it up. You're not there. So when they come out, if they tell you it's in spot 5, 7, and 12, then you know that they got it right. It's not the end of the world. And if you're that concerned, you can put a camera in the room, and then you can review the footage later on or afterwards. But do not be afraid to do these blind searches, and it needs to be done. Nothing validates your training better than doing it blind. Absolutely. So that's the one thing they don't get. So on the – going back to the research part, go ahead. Oh, okay. So future research. Yes. Um, so I, I, I don't know if this will happen, but I would really like to repeat the cocaine narcotics mod study okay. with green dogs. Okay. Because it was great that I have control over the, no, not me personally. I yeah. don't train dogs, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that I know that they're all getting trained in the same way because the only drawback, and it's not personal, it knows work, knows work is fantastic. Sure. Yeah. But the only drawback is that I can't control mm-hmm. how they, how much training they're doing, yep. and I can account for that, and they give me records and everything. Yep. Um, but th- it would be a stronger case if I could, sure, if I, if had, I had that a little more me. control over it. Yeah, so that's one thing. But um, uh, things that I have going on the pipeline is we are actually hopefully going to start looking at oil detection for oh. oil remediation. Oh, okay. Apparently, there are dogs that are very successful at finding oil for oil spill remediation. Okay. Which is something that I had never occurred to me. All right. And I think is really cool. Yep. So we are going to try to use science to um, work to get really good, solid training protocols okay. for those dogs. Um, but more on the, the law enforcement side of things, um, I'm hopefully going to be getting into fentanyl-related work. Excellent. Which I think is really important. I think it's really important to figure out if you train a dog on fentanyl is it, can it find the analogs? Yeah. Um, is there, so what I want to know as a chemist side of things yep. is, is there, um, an odorant in common between mm. fentanyl and at least a majority of the analogs? So you don't want to be out there. I mean, there's just a, they're just going to keep making more and more different versions of fentanyl. So you, yeah. you you're going to be chasing your tail there. Yeah, no, and that was like the whole K2 and spice and all those yeah. things back in those days. All that, you know, DA couldn't regulate it because all they do is change a chemical and now right. it's something different again. And I think they changed how they regulate it. But that doesn't help you as a dog, dog per, yeah. trainer. Yeah. So um, that's something that, that I'm interested in. And then we're also just starting to try to find um, – I have to go out and find funding. So yeah. going out and finding funding to do more shelf life studies. It's yes. not They're not sexy research projects yep. Yep. at all, but they're really important. Super important for, like you said, because not all substances are the same, but yet we recycle them or change them out on a set schedule. And that's usually because of a budget right. year kind of thing, not what's really needed to happen. Right. So that's something that I really, I'm starting with working with, um, uh, actually Jenna Gadbury and yeah. Michelle Mon yep. on, we the, had them on the show. On the, yes. Yep. On the TADS. So we're doing some storage studies with their TADS, which is yep. going to be very cool. Um, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping yep. to do research on, more generically on, on some, with some shelf life guidelines. That would be, yeah. No, it's a huge deal for, for us in this industry. And then my doubt. last, um, research effort that is ongoing right now um, is uh, looking at the limited detection of okay. dogs. So right. um, I think I mentioned that NRL does a lot of vapor generation and okay. we do that so we can do um, validation of handheld okay. type sensors, mm-hmm. detectors, mm-hmm. things like that. We, we can, we're, it is something that NRL special or our, my particular group at NRL specializes in. We're very, we're very good at generating, generating very, very low amounts of, um, uh, of different, Complicated vapors, explosives, okay. and things, yep. hazardous materials. 
So um, I have altered our little device that we use to do that um, to start doing dog testing. I'm doing that in collaboration with Auburn University um, under the funding of Office of Naval Research. We have no results yet. It's just setting. We're just sure. We're just prepping for it, but okay. I'm really excited because we should be able to get some really good direct measurements between handhelds that are out there and dogs. dogs. Yeah. And then also, I mean, once we get those baselines done, there's just a million different studies. Oh, you yeah. can look at how masking agents affect uh-huh. things. You can look at how illnesses affect things. Yep. And there's just a million oh, yeah. options. So we're really excited about that yeah. research. No, it, that, that would be interesting because everybody's scared of the technology. Will the technology ever override the dog and how this oh, happened? Oh, another hour. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the mod device that you have, can people get that? And if so, how do they do that? Yeah, it is sold by, um, I, I think it's sold by, well, I know who it's sold by, but I okay. think they're Pervivo Labs or Precision Explosives, if okay. you look them up. Okay. And I believe they're in the, oh, what is that? Yeah, no, if we find it, I'll put the show notes or whatever. Yeah. You can, um, you can find it online. Um, if you look up Pervivo Labs or Precision Explosives, you can find it and they actually sell little homemade explosive kits so you can just drop things in. Okay. Perfect. Which is good that those are things too that the inert items that Mm -hmm. they mimic what you're going to find in the real world that have you trained. I am not soliciting. No, no, no. (laughs) But it's important. Yes. No, the, uh, and, and when you like at this event, uh, you teach classes. So what classes do you teach? And if people want to reach out, uh, how would they reach out to you? But again, I'll start off with like the classes you teach and then how we sure. get a hold of you. So um, at this particular conference, I'm doing, well, I, I do a lot of um, a class called odor chemistry or the chemistry of odor. Um, and so for this particular conference, I'm doing a more general one where I cover narcotics and mm-hmm. explosives and some of the work I've done with cadaver. Mm-hmm. And because it, it doesn't really matter what the dog is detecting. Yeah. It's about... I spent a lot of time talking about what the odor is doing and mm-hmm. how that affects what the dog is doing and mm-hmm. that might in a way that you might have not predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just some misconceptions with odor. Yep. And then I'm also teaching a homemade explosives class to talk mm-hmm. about how important it is to understand homemade explosives because they're a lot more complex than mm-hmm. traditional explosives when it comes to dealing with them and, and training and whatnot. Um, but I... Um, I do do a fair amount of seminars, and I can I, I will tailor them to whomever With needs the them. For audiences. instance, I've done them for Noseworks okay. as well, yep. and they yep. obviously don't care about. Yeah. They don't care so much about narcotics or explosives. No, yeah, but it's it's still the 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 training and mixtures and things like that you deal with and confounding odors and how odor works is a big thing that they're. You so you bring up a thing that I brought up in my class, and I'll let we talk about it for a quick second. Not at source. It's the thing that I brought up on other podcasts. Um, you know, a common thing that trainers will tell handlers is, oh, because they know where the odor, where they put the substance out at is the location where the dog should alert, even though the dog's alerting further down from that. Um, speak about that a little bit and, and kind of discuss a common misconception that comes from that. Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but people forget, for one, that odor molecules, as we think of them as like floating around and very, very light, but they mm-hmm. do have some amount of mass, which means they are affected by gravity, so they fall. Yep. So one thing that odor will do is that it will pool below the source. And if mm-hmm. the source is something like ammonium nitrate that doesn't uh-huh. produce much odor, if it sits there for long enough, you can end up with a more concentrated pool lower mm-hmm. than at the top. Um, also, if it is a particularly absorbent material that is near the source, mm-hmm. but like where the source, or something. Yeah, yep. but where the source is is not terribly absorbent. Yep. 
again, if it sits for long enough, you uh-huh. could end up with more on the absorbent material than yep. at the source. Yep. It's, it, it, the longer something sits, the bigger problem it becomes. When you initially put it out, the only place that odor could be coming from yep. is the source. Yep. But then the longer it sits and the more yep. the odor gets to move. Yep. And that's the thing I see a lot of times for those that do the nose work competitions or even certifications for the law enforcement dogs is if your dog number 25 or yeah. more or whatever, saying the dogs have to alert to where that substance was placed is no longer a fair evaluation, especially if the dog's giving indication further away. Yeah. Because it's not there anymore in the same sense. I agree. I have also seen it go the other direction mm-hmm. where there are handlers that are aware that 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 odor moves and yep. what have you, and it starts to become a, an excuse for the dog sure. yeah. not case, working yeah. properly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's it's important to, mm-hmm. you know, check yourself and make Absolutely. sure that you're not just using that as an yeah. excuse. for why Usually the dogs will tell you because you'll start seeing three or four dogs all yes. exhibiting yeah. the same thing. And that's usually the good indication as a trainer. Okay, odor's collecting over here yeah. now. Versus Cabinets here. and things like that are yeah. a really good example where they can move out of one section and then get trapped it, in another one. Yeah. And the, it can be very strong in the, in in another in the other area. Yeah. So how do people get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out for a seminar or just ask questions in general, that kind of thing? Sure. I love answering questions. My email address is my name, which okay. is, of course, hard to spell. <laughs> which, so how about this? I'll put it in the show notes, but they can e- but, by email. Yeah, so it's lauren.degrief at nrl.navy.mil. Sorry, I got okay. lost track of the no, middle no. there. But um, Cameron <laughs> will spell because neither my first or last name yes, is Yes, or the common spelling. Yes, correct. Uh, <laughs> well, my last name just doesn't have a common but anyway, no, yeah. Um, but yeah, reach out to me via email, and yeah. um, I love answering questions. And and I, I can tell you, it's a huge help having uh, a, a resource like Dr. Grief because we we you know we've had our like I said our assumptions in the dog world, and we don't get a lot of times to interact with people like yourself that do the studies and that have some information. And a lot of times, people like you don't get talked to us as often. Yeah. So it's a great way to collaborate. And and my goal as people start to see through the podcast and on my social media is I'm trying to integrate those two worlds more often. So take please take advantage of, of uh, individuals that are willing to uh, answer those questions because what do you have to lose besides asking that question? You, you're better prepared at the end of the day when they have information than just keeping assuming or guessing you know, what you think you know. It honestly helps me more than you think also because that's how I come up with research ideas yeah. by – by what people in the field don't have an answer to, and mm-hmm. I can't go find it because there's no research there. Mm-hmm. That's a topic that needs to be covered. And also, when I give seminars, if I start getting asked the same questions over and over again, I can incorporate that. Yeah. And so, like when I I give this it, chemistry of odor talk somewhat uh-huh. frequently, but it evolves constantly because sure. I get asked new questions, yeah. and then I find the answer, and then I yeah. want to incorporate it into the material. But what really drives me and drives my research for mm-hmm. NRL is um, helping the end user, helping the handler. Mm-hmm. Um, I Basic research is great and it's interesting and it's really, really important. But just personally, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy things that can have um, a, a, an impact, a, sure. a quick impact. And, and this industry definitely needs it. So, I thank you so much for the, your time and, and spending with me doing this you know, podcast and interview here. And I look forward to doing a lot more uh, research or discussing things with you and collaborating uh, now that I have my freedoms that 
I don't have to be tied to the, the, all the government rules that I used to have to follow. So even though you still do, I, still do. Yep, <laughs> I, I have the ability to uh, reach out to you and, and we'll definitely do some more engagement and, and talking and, and research ideas and things like that. And maybe some of the stuff we would do with cognition and even with Dr. Hall that you already know and, and, and Dr. Pro, uh, Tiederman now to be able oh, to, right. yeah, you're, that's why I have to keep calling her Dr. Paula Prada because no one knows her as her new last name yet, which we, we joked about on the show too. But yeah, to do more collaborative efforts so that way, you know, those that you guys that are interested, uh, just keep following our, our page. And if you have questions on this show or any other ones, feel free to email me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverState, K, the number nine, dot com. Again, thank you so much for thank being on Thank you so here. much for having me. All right. It's great. Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Well, that concludes this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I hope all of you have enjoyed it. I hope you took some information from this, learned from it. Um, I have a couple great interviews scheduled for next month. Next month in December is our Canine Health and Fitness Month. I have two great interviews lined up with Joanne Brenner from Canine Medic and Kimberly Artley from PackFit. We are going to go over various things such as first aid, such as supplements, holistic types of things that we can do to help our detection dogs, first aid type of things that we need to have ready or be prepared for when it comes to working a detection dog, Uh, whether you are in nose work or you're a professional working a drug dog, bomb dog, what have you, what are the important things that we can do to protect our four-legged friends that are out there using their noses. There's various different hazards or various different things that we can do to enhance our dogs or to help them with being a detection dog. So next month will be a lot of fun, uh, a good theme for the month before the year ends, and things that we can do to be better prepared to have a happy, healthy canine out there using their nose and searching. So until then, please send me your emails Please share this information from our podcast with all your friends. Um, The audience is growing. I've been so thankful for you guys who have donated to the podcast. Um, I have been able to put a lot of that to great use, uh, doing more trips, interviewing more people, having more materials ready for you guys. Again, thank you guys for all your support. And until the next episode, I will talk to you then. 